Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now today's message. All right. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. I'm just kidding. I'm teasing. I I didn't, I don't know that much. I know a few things, though. That is cool. So we have been in a series called Different. We've been in that series since I got back from sabbatical the first Sunday of October, and we're asking two questions. What kind of disciples do we want to make as we look toward our collective future? And secondly, what kind of church environment? That's really the question that we're looking at right now. What kind of church environment produces those kinds of disciples And I gave you four letters two weeks ago to memorize. K-D-S-C. They stand for Kingdom, Disciple, Society, and Church. They are what they are for a reason, and they are in that order for a reason. And I talked about that two weeks ago when I talked about the Kingdom of God. Today I'm going to do something a little bit unique. I'm going to take us back to a passage of Scripture that I preached on the very first Sunday of 2023. Very first Sunday, Matthew chapter 4. So the text that you're looking at is the same text we opened up our year with, but I'm going back to it today because I I don't think there's a better text that really describes the concepts that we want to cover today. What does it mean, okay, to, to, to produce the kind of environment that produces the kind of disciples that the Lord would commend to us and command us to produce in the 21st century? Well, that starts with a, a right understanding and practice of the kingdom of God, that understanding of the kingdom will then produce a particular kind of disciple. Now, all of us, we've been in church longer than 15 minutes. We've heard that word disciple. It occurs 281 times in the New Testament alone. And so if we want to know what it means to follow Jesus, we need to spend some time unpacking that. And we probably, just to be honest, need to see it in light Uh, in a different light than maybe some modern church notions have given us. That's going to result in a shift in our thinking. I said something of this a couple of weeks ago that for the longest time the Western church has confined this idea of discipleship to a large extent to the classroom. So if I come to a class or I'm part of a group and I study enough of the Bible and I get knowledge in my head, I'm a disciple. And so what that ends up looking like is a disciple, well, then is somebody who's a member of a church in good standing and they show up on Sunday and they get more information and then they come back the next week and they get more information and then they go into a Bible study group and they get more information and then they give some money and, and then they maybe they serve a little bit. But the problem with that approach is that Everything in that scenario is focused on the person and his or her church. And if you were here two weeks ago, you already know what's wrong with that. What's wrong with that is the church is not ultimate. The church is necessary. KDSC. Church is a part of the process. Church is a part of the plan. Without a church, there is no kingdom advance. But church isn't primary and church isn't ultimate. Kingdom is ultimate. His rule and reign over all things. The church is the on-earth corporate entity charged with providing manifestations of that kingdom to a broken world. As I said two weeks ago, we are the embassies, the representatives of God's kingdom on this earth. And and so we can't do that if we don't have a clear understanding of the kind of disciples that we're called to produce in that context. And it literally is the distinction between church disciples and kingdom disciples. Church disciples are religious consumers of religious goods and services who are all about their church. 
Kingdom disciples are servants to the world Jesus died to save who in the power and presence of the Holy Spirit bring transformation everywhere their feet touch the ground. Now, I don't know about you, but I would rather be in that second category. I don't want to be a consumer, merely a consumer. That's not to say the church doesn't serve your needs or the church doesn't equip you or the church doesn't teach you things. All of those things are important. They're just not ultimate, and we have to get this right. And so when you're trying to return to the roots of a thing, the best way to do that is to discover its origin. And that's what takes me back to Matthew chapter 4. Read with me beginning in verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And then the next verse says, they, they dropped their nets and they followed him, which made absolutely no sense to me for the very first time I heard that story as a kid, eight, nine years old. I mean, I knew enough to know that if Jesus says to do something, you should do it. If Jesus says don't do something, you shouldn't do it. That, that's about the extent of your, your moral compass as a seven or an eight-year-old kid. But, but I read this story and I thought, what, did he hypnotize them? Is this a Jedi mind trick? What is this? It looked to me like somebody they'd never met before walks up to them, waves a wand or something, and then they just sort of drop everything. And that's actually, as I discovered later on, not what happened at all. When you understand the history behind this moment, the moment not only makes sense, it is so much more powerful. And again, you heard me share some of this information before, but it so bears repeating so that we can fully understand what's transpiring here. In these days... In the historical environment in which this account took place, every Hebrew boy went to Torah school. All right, Genesis through Deuteronomy, the law. They went to school starting at about age five, and all of them went, and they learned the Hebrew language, and they learned uh, to memorize the scriptures, and they learned the Ten Commandments, and all of these things. They would spend the next five years doing nothing but memorizing large sections of God's Word. By the way, we really need to do a better job of that. And, I, and by we, I just mean the church in general. We don't spend enough time in God's word. We don't spend enough time week to week memorizing God's word. I have hid your word in my heart that I might not sin against you, right? Another sermon for another day. But that's what they'd spend five years doing. And then they'd get to age 10, there would be a bit of a culling of the herd. And, and it was a big culling. Like 80% of these little boys got sent home. All right, you, you're not going to be on the team but that's okay. You now know a lot of the Torah. We're going to send you home. Most of them went back. They lived with their fathers. They learned the same trade that their father did and, and, and all of that good stuff. The, the other 20% that remained, they would go on for another seven years beyond the study that they had gotten between ages five and, and 10. And then when they got to 17, there would be another sort of moment where they would be asked some questions because we, we need to make another cut. But in order to find out who's going to make the team at 17, we need to ask these young men two questions. Number one, do you feel called to a vocation in religious studies? Not just do you want to follow the Lord, not just do you want to learn more of his word, but is this something you want to make a career out of? Is this something that you believe God has called you to do full time? But then there was a second question. That second question was, can you find a rabbi who finds you worthy of that? Yeah, see, not just anybody gets on this team. And here's the thing about the rabbis. They were picky. And let me tell you why they were picky. Because their students were a reflection on them. And they knew that. All right? 
There are pastors in pulpits all over this country that I had the honor, sometimes as, as, as far back as 20 years ago, to be one of their professors. And I think it's really cool to watch them serve Jesus, but I got to tell you, there's one or two of them I just want to go, I, they didn't get that from me, right? Like, there's, there's always somebody. There's always somebody. And, and so these rabbis, man, they're picky, and they're more picky because this isn't just a classroom environment. This is somebody that's going to live with you. This is an environment of just full and complete mentorship. And so if the rabbi picks you, they're saying, this is somebody with the capacity to become like me. They're not just sitting at my feet and learning how to do ministry and learning the Bible. They're learning my own mannerisms. They're learning the particular way that I answer questions and, and deal with problems and handle various situations. And to this day, actually, the best compliment that could be paid to a Talmud, a student of a rabbi, is to say to them this phrase, the dust of your rabbi is all over you. Which is another way of saying, you're following your rabbi so closely that every time he takes a step, the dirt on the bottom of his feet goes, sprays back and up, and you just got it on you. All right? that, that's what you are following him closely. And this is what you were aiming for. There's this really cool Hebrew word, and I also brought this up in January. So some of you will remember this, and some of you have the attention span of a goldfish, and so I'm going to remind you. Okay? The word is shmicha. Yeah, I see. You tried to say it. Go ahead and look at your neighbor and try to say it. Shmicha. Shmicha. Shmicha is the word for authority. Authority. I don't mean badge authority, gun authority. I mean someone who looks at you and says, if we want to know what something means, we go to that person. Right? Shmicha. And these rabbis, that's what they were after. That's what, isn't it really what anybody's after who has a craft or who has a skill or who has a profession or, or who has a calling? By the way, everything's a calling. Right? You used to hear that, well, there are some things that are a career, but ministry is not a career, it's a calling. If you're a follower of Jesus, your career is a calling. So let, that's a false distinction. It's like, you're a pastor, is that a career or a calling? Yes. Yes, it's both. And, and what you're aiming for is excellence, Right? If you're a counselor, if you're a teacher, if you're an engineer, you man, there's just something about being known and having a reputation for being among the best. That's what these guys were aiming for. This was the word that was applied to those people, kind of the elite few. In fact, first century Judaism recognizes only about a dozen or so of these people. We see a couple of them, like Hillel and Gamaliel, um, in our New Testament, they were masters of the Torah. They had the recognized spiritual authority. Hey, let's go to them. They will interpret this rightly. And, and, and of course, the process for becoming that kind of rabbi was a really exclusive club, and it was very hard to get into. All right, so with that background, let's go back to Matthew 4. Jesus comes to these men. So first of all, you've got Jesus, who at 12 is correcting the scholars in the synagogue, just so he's got the shmiha. He presumes the shmiha because he utters these ridiculously absurd, self-centered phrases like, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Right? He presumes it. I've got it. And he approaches men who are fishermen. Why are they fishermen? Well, the background would tell us they're fishermen because at some point, either at 10 or at 17, or Peter might have got kicked out at like 14. Who knows, right? But, but at some point along the way, they got cut. They got cut from the team. So when Jesus assembles his 12, 
he assembles the second stringers. I watched the second stringers yesterday. I, I, watched, I, I was watching a football game late last night, and uh, but my Clemson Tigers beat North Carolina if you're a Tar Heel. <laughs> Love you. Oh, no, it was a great game. But I'm, I'm going to tell you, it, it, was, it was a close game for a little while. Um, and, and so right at the end of the game, clock's winding down. There's three seconds on the fourth quarter clock. There's, all right, there's 33 seconds on the play clock. And so I'm thinking, run the clock out, right? We're done. Like, don't take a risk. Just, just, coach calls a timeout. I'm like, what are you doing? Like, I'm, yeah, I'm one of them. I try to coach from my chair. What are you doing? You should be doing it. Like, here's what I discovered. There were seniors on that team who had not played yet. And that was going to be their last game on that field. And he brought them all together. Some of them, their uniforms still smell like woolite. All right, because they ain't seen a snap the whole game. Called them together. And he said, you might be second stringers, but you're seniors. And the last snap of this game belongs to all of you. Isn't that awesome? Like, here's, here's what's going on. That's exactly, guys, what happened on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus comes directly to the B team. That should make us feel good. Hey, let, me, let me show you five principles that flow out of this story. And the first is this. Jesus, when he makes a choice, does not choose the best. He chooses the willing. Look at verse 18 again. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen, right? All that background, once again, in this story, I, I want you to let the force of that sink in. They see this man whose reputation most everybody has known since the age of 12. And he says, follow me. He comes to you, been cut from the team, and he says, follow me. Like Davo last night, calling those seniors together and saying, you need some dirt on your uniform before you go home to your mama's. Get out on that field. You've got, what other thing would a senior football player do but say, yeah, coach, and go onto the field? What else would you do when the Lord Jesus comes to you and says, come with me, than to simply drop whatever is in your hands and go to him? Jesus doesn't worry about whether you're the best. He chooses the willing. Some years later, Paul will express this value to another group of people who are, I'm going to guess, unlikely to be seen as spiritual giants. It was the church at Corinth. These were people that came out of a godless, pagan culture. That They were still, even as they were followers of Jesus, they were still doing some sleeping around. They were drinking a little bit too much at communion. Like it was a mess. And Paul opens up, again, he deals with all of that. He doesn't, well, that's okay. No, no, that's sin that's got to be repented of. But he opens up his letter to the Corinthians saying, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. I mean, of all the places in the first century to go, if you're Jesus and you're going to be God, become a man, and you're going to walk this earth at this point in history, and you want scholarship, you go to Alexandria. That's where the great library was. That's where all the African scholars were. That's where civilization was springing forth from at that point in history. If you want philosophy and great thought, you go to Athens. That's where the philosophers were. If you want power, the Washington, D.C. of the first century was Rome. That's where you go. And Jesus comes to this earth, and he passes over Herodotus and Socrates and Julius Caesar. Finds a bunch of rednecks on the beach. And he said, those are my boys. 
That should give us hope. See, that, that's the question. Not a single rabbi among them, even in their own culture, they're not respected as people who could have made it to the top level. That's the question, guys. Are you willing? Not what credentials do you have, right? I've been to seminary. Some of the guys that I graduated with are dumb as a rock. We're not talking about that. We're talking about are you willing? Will you simply say yes? Because a kingdom disciple is not merely somebody who sits in a class and fills their head with all kind of stuff. A kingdom disciple does two things. They hear and they obey. That's it. That's all it takes. Now, that's a lot. Because sometimes Jesus asks for a lot. But those two things make this pretty, a pretty simple enterprise. Okay? Not a whole lot of degrees. Not a whole lot of credentialing. Not a whole lot of climbing the ladder. Just hear and obey. Hear and obey. Are you willing to do that? I had a church planner call me several years ago, and uh, he said, I just, just got to tell you this story. He said, I got a young lady in my church, and she and her husband had been, been saved, but they've been walking with Jesus about a year or so. And he said, she called me late last night, and she said, I just had this thing happen in our apartment complex, and I'm, I'm, I'm feeling really good, but I'm also a little nervous, and I don't know if I've done the right thing, and I just, I just want to tell you what happened. And so this guy, who's her pastor at this point, says, yeah, what? What, what, do you, what do you got? And she said, well, there's this other couple, young couple. They're right across the hall from us. They're not believers, but they're a sweet couple. We've been sharing a lot of meals together. We spent about this last year since coming to know Jesus and just investing our lives in them. Unconditional friendships. We're not worried about whether or not they ever believe like we do in terms of the friendship. We don't condition the friendship on that. But, man, Pastor, we want them to know Jesus the way we know him. And so whenever we're able to, we try to talk about him with them. And she said, my husband and I just got home from dinner earlier tonight than expected and they were waiting on us they invited us into their apartment and they had been reading the gospels together all of them matthew mark and they got to the end of luke and they said we need to know who this jesus is and so she said we my husband and i we, we talked about what it means to follow jesus we led them as they prayed and they asked the lord to forgive them of their sins and and to come into their life and they they followed jesus and no sooner than they had said amen they looked back up at us and said while we were waiting on you all to get home we also kept reading and we've gotten about halfway through this book called acts and unless we're misunderstanding something we need to get baptized like now so she said, I took them down to the apartment swimming pool, and there were maybe six or seven people there, and we spent a few minutes just talking about the gospel with all those people around, and then we baptized them right there. Pastor, did I do anything wrong? The answer is no, by the way. You did nothing wrong, which he told her. And then he said this. He said, well, I just, now I'm at the point where I, I think I've, I've worked myself out of a job. Like, is there anything I can do for you guys? And she said, well, as a matter of fact, you can. They're living together, and now that they're believers, they want to make that right. Would you come help officiate a wedding? Right? You, you don't need a pastor for that. You need people in love with Jesus who hear, who obey, who let that love for him spill over into other people. Are you willing god wants to use you like that every one of you in your family at your workplace that's why we ask you to go and to volunteer it's not just so we can staff a children's ministry there's some young lives back there that need to be invested in they need to look up and see the same face every week at your workplace there are people who need to see that presence there and feel it stop making excuses that you're not able because the truth of the matter is none of us is really Missions is not about God needing the talented or the eloquent or the... Anybody ever teach your kids 
how to wash your car in the driveway. Who's, who's done that? All right. All right. Keep your hand up if that expedited the process. <laughs> so why do you do it? Why, why, do, you, why do you do it? Because one day they'll have a car of their own, won't they? Yeah, because praise the Lord, they're not going to be living at your house. So at some point, that's right. You're getting them ready for some. This is for their benefit, not yours, because Lord knows I don't benefit trying to teach my kids how to do something. It slows everything down. It messes all kinds of stuff up. You make the investment because there's a future that you're preparing for. And any professional educator in this room will tell you that's the case. What are you doing? This isn't about being able. You're not able. I'm not able. The Lord equips us in the mission. He gets us ready for it. Are you willing? Because that's what he needs. Just obedience. Just yes. Follow me. That's what disciples do. They hear and obey. That's why Jesus doesn't choose the best. He chooses the willing. Principle number two. He chose us, not we him. He says, follow me in verse 19. And I will make you fishers of men. Remember this whole uh, rabbi Talmud relationship and how it worked? You had to choose your rabbi. And then you had to hope and pray that he would choose you back. Your selection then gave you confidence. You ever had a moment of struggle and you were looking for confidence? Like, I can make it through this. Maybe you turn to your spouse. Or maybe you turn to your, your boss or a pastor, or a mentor, or somebody like that. I mean, I, I can't, I'm, I'm just thinking about what it takes to become a rabbi, and I'm, I, I'm getting triggered remembering my Hebrew studies in seminary. Like, ugh. it's crazy. If any of my Jewish friends are watching, they're about to laugh at me, because they know that I, I have a working knowledge now, the Hebrew language, but if they were here, they would go, yeah, working knowledge, right? You're one of them Gentile boys. You need vowels. Yes, I need vowels to read a language. Yes, I was raised with vowels. You know what else I was raised with? Reading from left to right. I mean, the whole thing just jacked me up. And so I'm like six weeks into this, and I am just, I am lost as a golf ball in high weeds. I go back to our apartment in Louisville, Kentucky. I'm just laying on my stomach across our bed, and my wife comes in. And she has, she's managing a bookstore. It's an appropriate work for her to do. Um, she's in the PhD program, putting hubby through. That's what it was called back then. And so I'm laying on the bed, and she's obviously, she walks in. She's a little bit concerned. Are you okay? And I'm like, well, I'm, I mean, I'm fine physically, but I, I don't know. And she's like, what's wrong? And I said, I, I don't know if I'm cut out for this. I, I, I'm a, I understand nothing. I'm six weeks in. The drop ad date is coming. And I'm having some serious thoughts about just withdrawing. She said, from the class? And I said, no. No. I'm not even sure. You ever been there? Right? I, I'm not even sure I'm supposed to be here. I, I, I'm just a South Carolina boy. What am I doing here? And, and gentlemen, if you've been married and you've been in a situation like that, you know kind of what you're looking for is, is, is for your wife to go, oh, baby, listen, it's going to be fine. It's, it's going to be okay. You're, you're smart. You can do this. You can do this. I believe in you. Maybe even rub your back a little bit while she says it. <laughs> that woman said, 
You mean to tell me you moved me 400 miles to not last six weeks? Well, you better get up out of that bed. I just got home from work. You think you've had a hard day? We got to go to a small group and talk about marriage tonight, don't we, baby? That's going to be fun. It's going to be a whole lot more fun now that they know that story. You're looking for something, right? You know what I had to learn in that moment? My validation couldn't come from her anyway. Jesus chose me. For what reason? I really don't know. And truthfully, that's where the confidence comes from. The fact that he was looking for you even before you were looking for him. Some of you were never looking for him. I never wanted to do this. My daddy was a deacon. I heard church crap. I didn't want anything to do with it. I did not want to do this. And now, after almost 30 years of it, I want to finish this. You know what the difference is? Recognizing you've been chosen for it, even if you didn't want it. And thanking God that the rabbi of rabbis says, I am with you. All right? I mean, that's what happened to these guys. None of, this wasn't even on their radar until they, until they recognized him on the beach. And he would remind them of this often. You did not choose me. I have chosen you. And for some of you, that's, that's happening right now. That's happening right now. Or it's going to happen. God's going to grab you. God's going to call you. You're fighting it. Some of you right at this moment whether it's a call to be a pastor, whether it's a call to serve in some way, whether it's a call to change job, whatever it might be. Right? And you've been fighting it and fighting it and fighting it and fighting it because you don't realize he chose you first. This is, this is really not up to you. But it is such a high and a holy privilege. And, and you know, there have been times in my marriage that I've thought, you know, if Jesus was married to my wife, he'd do a much better job than I would, which is absolutely true. You know, if Jesus were the father of my children, he would know exactly how to discipline, exactly how to solve this. If Jesus were in my workplace, he'd do a far better job of talking about himself than I do of talking about him. And life smacks you down, you fail, you feel like you're up against an insurmountable obstacles. If Jesus, if Jesus. Well, listen, all of that's true, but that's not what he promised. Look at these words from Ephesians 2.10. We are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's his plan. Teaching you to wash the car, even though it's going to make a mess, even though it's going to delay the process, even though some stuff's going to get messed up. He's there with you. He is equipping you. He has chosen you. He has called you. He wants to use you. You got to say yes. You better say yes to him. He has chosen you. I get requests sometimes to pray for family members or work colleagues or maybe there's a disease or, or they're, maybe they're far from God and they want their kids or their parents to, to come to Jesus or whatever. Listen, I'm happy that I'm honored to be asked to do that, but sometimes I get, Pastor, I just wish you could be there when these discussions come up because you would know exactly what to say. And I got to tell you, I don't think in most cases that's true at all, like maybe you think it is. But here's what I am sure of. God didn't put me there. He put you there. And you can do this. 
if you will simply say yes to him. Hear and obey. He chooses the willing. He chooses us, not him. Here's principle number three. Our primary calling is to be with him. Verse 19, follow me. Where? You know, every job that I have ever applied for and desired, including this one, came with a job description. This is the, roughly the number of hours a week you're going to be working. This is the, these are the objectives that we want this position to fill. These are the expectations. This, this is what we want you to do in the day-to-day. This is how we want you to respond in a crisis situation. Like it's all detailed, like before the elders, before I said yes to the elders, I got one of those. And I had the opportunity to look at all of it and consider, do we come or do we not? Jesus doesn't work that way. There's no job description except those two words, follow me. Where? Wrong question. Wrong question. And guys, this goes all the way back to Abraham. Leave your family and go where I tell you. And can you imagine if, if, if U-Haul had existed back then? <laughs> Lord, I've got to tell them where the termination point is. I got to drop this truck off somewhere, right? I will let you know when, when I get ready, I will let you know. Follow me. Where? I don't know. There's nothing here about where. There's nothing here about what. It's only who. Because your first assignment as a disciple in mind is to become like him. And the only way to do that, this takes us back ironically enough, into possibly a classroom, is you ingest his word, right? Because the primary goal is for someone to say of you what first century Talmud had said of them who were faithful. The dust of your rabbi is all over you. I mean, I just wonder, is that your disposition today? Is it mine? I want to follow Jesus closely. I want to follow him so deliberately that everything on the bottom of his feet sprays back and sprays up and covers me. And there's a lot of ways that you can You can do that here. There are ways you can serve. There are groups you can get involved with. There are all kinds of things. Get his word inside of you until it dominates everything. Because the key is to follow him and be with him. And you can't follow him if you don't get more acquainted with this. I told you this had a point. The, The issue is big heads with shriveled up little hearts and barely any hands. All right, That's not a disciple. That's a really overweight student. That's what that is, right? But it's not a disciple. They're not doing anything. They're not serving well. They're not being effective. They're not executing for the kingdom. But, but the, other, the other side of that is big old hearts and shriveled up little bitty brains. Those are dangerous people, okay? I mean, it, God forbid, but if I ever need neurosurgery one day, I don't want that surgeon to look over me as they're about to put that mask on to put me to sleep and go, look, I got D's in med school, but I love Jesus. Give me that saw. Right? Nobody wants that. Yes, competence. 
Yes, learning God's word because you adore it. Not because you're trying to be a scholar, but because you adore his word. Because God, who did not have to reveal himself to you or to me, has revealed himself fully and finally in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, who in turn has revealed himself fully and finally in the 66 books that are sitting in your lap right now. Or that should be. And if they're not, don't feel guilt about that. Just get a free gift on your way out. we got plenty of them. One of the many things we do around here is we give Bibles away. We love doing that kind of thing. But, but that's, that's the principle. The call is simply, what's he going to call me to do? I think I need it. It's one of, the, one of the earliest things we have to do with young preachers. At the college level, at the seminary level, it's like, look, you need to, yeah, well, I'm going to do this, or I want to pastor a church like this, or this is kind of what I want to do, or, or I, I want to take this measure, that measure. I want to work for this parachurch organization. I want to get it. No, 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 no. Come, come here, come here. How are you and Jesus? How's that going? Right? How's that going? Because you will make an absolute wreck of your ministry if you're not with him. That's the issue. It's one of the first required courses when we're preparing for somebody for ministry in a formal way is spiritual formation. We don't just assume they got that at their church, although Lord knows they should have. Follow me. Where? Wherever he says. All right? That brings us to principle number four. We have to leave it all. Now, I told you a hard part was coming. And this really is the, this is the acid test. Immediately, verse 20, says they left their nets and followed him. Verse 22, we see this repeated again. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Okay, these two things represent the two most significant things in these men's lives, which I'm going to guess if you're an adult and you got a family, are the two most significant things in your life, your family and your livelihood. Jesus said, leave them both. Not that they're unimportant, not that you shouldn't love them, not that you shouldn't, right? I'm not trying to draw a dichotomy here, but he just says, I get first place. I get first place. Okay? A little preview of what's coming tonight for those of you who may be in here or maybe the, if, who will be at the 11 who are, who are coming to that small group meeting tonight who want to know how in the world a woman like that stays married to a guy like me for 30 years without murdering him in his sleep. Well... One of the ways you do that is you have to love Jesus more than you love your spouse. And then the, you have to be okay with your spouse loving Jesus more than she loves you. Because that makes, especially men, listen to me carefully, that makes, that makes your wife a joy to lead but not easy to lead. Because she ain't supposed to be easy to lead. How in the world is she going to make a man out of you if she just bows all the time? You're just going to be a little boy until you're 95. You ain't ever going to grow. Now, the number of men who not only can shave and reproduce but can't be men. I mean, I mean the, the hair they shave is gray, almost white, and they're still little boys because they haven't figured that out yet. They think that woman exists to blow their head up. She's there to make you more like Jesus. Your family, your livelihood. Matthew says, Jesus takes precedent over all of that. Jesus takes precedent over that. Most of us, before you get to thinking, oh my goodness, what's this going to cost me? Most of us are never going to feel the full weight of that. Okay? The vast majority of you, Jesus, is never going to tell you to quit your job. 
He's never going to tell you to convince your wife that you're supposed to move 3,000 miles away. But he might. Yeah, you really got to be got to be careful taking the Great Commission seriously. Because it might affect you. It might affect your wife. It might affect your children. They might live on the other side of the world in a few years. There's some implications here. And some of you may have to rethink your career. But most of us, we don't feel the full weight because we don't actually have to give up our fathers and our mothers. I know people who have. I know people in other nations, friends of mine, who when they became Christian, their parents said, you've got to choose between this new faith of yours and us. And they got cut off. You may have to transfer your job. You ever thought about maybe instead of where the money's at, where the kingdom is operating, and then let me go there? Young people who are in college, young couples who are with us maybe for three or four years, and then your company's going to transfer you somewhere else, and we're going to say, we're going to bid you farewell, and you're going to go maybe, maybe before considering which place is going to pay me the most money or which place is going to give me the most opportunity for advancement is maybe asking among the array of choices I have, where is God at work and how can I join him there? That's how kingdom disciples think. That's how they think. College, high school, there will be moments and they will be significant when you will have to decide what is going to have sway over your life. And for those of you who are at that age right now, those choices are far more viable and far more attractive than they have ever been in our culture. Attractive enough, you don't have to make, you don't have to completely do away with Jesus. You can have him as an augment to all this other stuff that forms your identity. Just don't put him at the center of it because, you know, our organization, the way we do things, the way we, no, no you, can't, you can't be that. And you're going to have to decide what's going to have sway over your life. I mean, I have friends serving in Southeast Asia. 20 years ago, their non-Christian parents said, we forbid it. And they had to make a decision. Do I, do I obey my mom and dad or do I obey Jesus? If you're an adult, that day is coming. And we forget in the 21st century that the gospel is not about what I get. It's how we end up with churches full of unregenerate, unconverted people always asking what's in it for me and how comfortable am I going to be. And never understanding the first thing Jesus gives you is your own cross. That's what he gives you. you got to hear and obey. you got to leave it all. And then fifthly, you have to reproduce. Verse 19, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. How do you prove you're a disciple? The answer is by bearing fruit. And if you're not bearing fruit, there is reason to question whether you are a disciple at all. That's just simply the the comprehensive message of the New Testament. Jesus' primary plan for making disciples, I, I talked about this with someone just the other day. Some of the work we do around the world will never involve a Billy Graham crusade. Well, my wife and I both volunteered at Billy Graham crusades when he was alive years ago. We're not opposed to that at all. That, that was a wonderful period in history that had a beginning that's probably winding down in terms of the way the world responds to the gospel. And then we think 
that because there are parts of the world that are closed to that delivery system that we've been using now for about 200 years, that that means they're closed to the gospel. That's code for we're allowing a 2,000-year-old message that could transform the life of people on every inhabited continent and allowing it to be held hostage to a 200-year-old delivery system. That's where our world is right now. And what will bust all of that wide open is disciples who hear and obey and who understand that the future of the globe and the gospel spreading there is, is not probably crusades, as wonderful as they are. It's not passion play. It's not creation concerts. Go have a ball. I don't know why y'all want to go sit in the mud and do that, but go do it. It's fine. It's not wrong. I mean, I hate to break it to you. His plan for this tri-state area is not better sermons. It's you. It's not something. It's not some strategy. It, it's someone. And by God's grace, I want to see that in you guys. Disciples over time, but reproducing yourself, walking so closely with Jesus that the dust from his feet sprays back and up and all over you, and that you walk and live alongside others in a way that teaches them to do the same. Because this is the thrust of Jesus' ministry, and this is where we'll close. Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. What would, we, what would this culture look like if, if just the hundreds of folks who call Covenant Home said, you know what, I'm going to take that seriously now. I'm going to hear and obey. If everybody in this room just shared one time with one person, what's that look like? Now, I know what the Bible teaches about conversion. I can't save anybody. You can't save anybody. You, you can't do that. But you can lead a horse to the water. You absolutely can. And that gospel, we're told in the New Testament, is the very power of God. So that's my question. Are you a disciple? Not a church disciple. A kingdom disciple. And, and maybe you're sitting there this morning and you've never really even understood the word disciple until today. And, and what you need to hear is this. The one who calmed the storm and who cast out demons and who healed diseases and who raised the dead and who confounded the scholars at the bright young age of 12 is looking at you in this moment and saying the same two words that he said to those rednecks on the beach. Follow me. Hear him. Obey him. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for your word and, and for what it teaches us about what it means to truly be a disciple, this culture that we live in, and we thank you for it, Lord, with the just great amount of freedom that we have in this nation and the, the privilege that we have and the resources that we have. It, it can make being a disciple of Jesus look much easier than you really intend for it to be. And so, Father, I pray for just hundreds of people today to take that first step in taking this seriously to just drop their net, whatever it is that's in their hands. Lord, maybe you don't require them to just leave it behind, but you do require them to drop it on the ground and let you pick it up if you want them to have it back. Father, may they surrender their lives to you. May, they, may we see just a ripple effect of that years from this moment, and we'll give you the praise for it all because you have done this. Your spirit has convicted. Your word has gone forward. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. We stand with you.
Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already receive from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.